Well, good morning, Branch Church. Everyone here, all of our church family online, it is a blessing to be with you. Amen. As we get to continue our worship through now the hearing, the receiving, and by God's grace, the applying of his words this morning. Have you ever been in trouble for something you know you didn't do? Only to find out later, it became very clear later that you were innocent. How did you feel during that time? Feelings of passionate justice. Feelings of maybe even anger. Maybe even sadness. Some of the saddest stories in history, I think, are those who have been wrongly convicted, even executed as criminals, only to find out later they were probably innocent. There's a story of a man, his name is Reuben Cantu. He was from Texas, and he was convicted of a murder he allegedly committed when he was 17 years old. Twelve, uh, when he was 26 years old, he was tried, he was convicted of murder, and he was sentenced to death. That was in 1993. Twelve years later, more information came out. The one witness, the one supposed eyewitness recanted their testimony. The co-defendant who let his friend fall came back and said, actually, he wasn't even there that night. How sad to go down in history as an executed criminal when he highly likely probably didn't even commit that. Christianity has faced a similar problem. We worship a great Lord and Savior, our great Lord and Savior, the only great Lord and Savior who was historically executed as a criminal under the Roman government, under the governorship of Pontius Pilate. And so history looks back and goes, what do you mean we should follow your savior? He was executed as a criminal. Just let it go. But scripture tells us a very different story. John chapter 18 tells us a very different story. It teaches us that Jesus was actually betrayed by his own disciples. He was betrayed by his own people. He underwent a Roman and a Jewish trial only to be found out he was innocent the whole time. Oh, and by the way, if this isn't the kicker, his words were being fulfilled prophetically the entire time all of this was going on. As we read and we study John 18 this morning, we are gonna see that rejection of Jesus has to do with people's hearts, not his innocence. Whether it's back then, whether it's today, whether it's tomorrow, it's not the fact that he is guilty. He's not, he's innocent. The problem is people's hearts. Turn with me, please, to John 18, and let's dive into this together. This morning, we're going to look at three specific scenes. We're going to look at Jesus' arrest, his Jewish trial, and then the beginnings of his Roman trial. And we're going to see Jesus contrasted with someone else at each scene. We'll see Jesus and Judas. We'll see Jesus and Peter. And then we'll see Jesus and his very own people. And we're going to sprinkle some Pilate in there as well. Let's begin with John 18, beginning in verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Jesus has just finished giving the final discourse, final beliefs he wants them to have, promises he wants them to hold on to. The Holy Spirit is going to come. He's going to send back to the Father. Now they go down the Kidron Valley, they're going to go up. You should see a picture of it on your screen here. And they're going to travel about 300 yards away from the temple to where the Garden of Gethsemane is, and it will be slightly on a hill. So they're not too far outside of Jerusalem, but they're right there. Verse 2, 
Now, Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers, oh, by the way, these are Roman soldiers, and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, these are the temple police, these are now Jewish soldiers, he went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. This looks very much like a scene from Beauty and the Beast. Gaston finds out Belle actually fell in love with the beast. And he's so upset, he locks her and her dad away. And they get torches and lanterns and weapons. And they start chanting a song, kill the beast, kill the beast. I wonder if the author of that movie read John 18 and decided that looks like a great thing to throw in there. Verse four, then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, he came forward and he said to them, whom do you seek? It seems that Jesus steps out of the garden of Gethsemane, out of the walled garden, and he now takes control and he wants to know, whom are you looking for? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Literally, they say Jesus the Nazarene. Why was he called this? Because Jesus was raised in Nazareth. So he was becoming known according to the city in which he was a part of. Jesus said to him, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and they fell, fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, he drew it and he struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. Peter, where'd you get a sword, man? The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. And here we have the scene accounted by John where Jesus was arrested. There is a great contrast here between Jesus and Judas. We'll begin with Judas. Judas betrayed Jesus. But this wasn't a, oops, my bad. I didn't see you standing there. I won't bump into you again. No, this was highly planned and executed by Judas. He put a lot of thought into it. How long would it have taken him to accomplish this whole scene right here? He had to go get Roman soldiers. He had to get Pilate's permission somehow, or someone else had to get it. He got the temple police. He got them together. I don't think those guys go out and hang out at the bar together. I don't think they like each other. He knew where they were gonna meet. He had to pick the day, the time, the place. He did it at night. He came up with a sign. Hey, the one I kiss on the cheek, this is the guy you want to arrest. How long would it have taken Judas to put all of this plan together? Judas fell. He succumbed to the temptation of the devil to betray Jesus. Why on earth would Judas betray him? He walked with him for over two and a half years. He heard the teachings of God. He heard the truth and the love of the Father. He watched Jesus bring the kingdom and make people whole again with their eyes, with their arms, with their bodies. He made dead people live. How could you betray Jesus after seeing all of that? Because he cared more about money than he did about God's one and only son. He cared more about money. 
He cared more about 30 pieces of silver than his eternal destiny. How sad. Why did he give up? Why did he betray Jesus? Because he was greedy. Greed is a horrible thing to be consumed by because it's never satisfied and you are willing to trade what's truly important for that which is temporary. Jesus tells a parable about this. He calls it, or it's called the parable of the rich fool from Luke chapter 12, I think beginning in verse 13. And this guy's like, man, I got all this wealth. I'm gonna build bigger barns. Tears them down, builds them bigger. This is great. Now I can relax. God says, you fool, tonight your very life will be demanded of you. Then who gets your stuff? That parable, the big point of that was not to be consumed by covetousness and greed. In contrast to Judas, who fell to greed, who fell to covetousness, we have Jesus. In the scene, Judas is betraying, Jesus is protecting. This is the point John is getting across. Jesus says, whom do you seek? Whom do you seek? Twice, Jesus of Nazareth. Okay, since you only want me, let them go. And then John tells us this fulfilled uh, God's word, Jesus's word that he would not lose one of whom the father has given him. Not one sheep the father is going to save is Jesus going to lose. And here's a picture of him protecting in the midst of him being betrayed and falsely arrested in the middle of the night. Oh, and additionally, now we have Peter who whips out a sword. (laughs) He's been watching Power Rangers, Star Wars, and he just hucks it Cuts the guy's ear off. I mean, what a shot. Small, we need this. Do not try this at home, kids. And what does Jesus do? Jesus does not raise the banner of violence. Put it away. John is showing us that Jesus is innocent in his arrest. He is not wanting Peter to do this. He's not banding together and trying to overthrow anything. He is drinking the cup of the Father. That is the Father's wrath for the sins of the world. Moreover, Jesus is shown as being in control here. He comes out. He initiates the conversation. The guys fall back on their face. You go, really? Did that really happen? That seems like one of those little, I don't know about that detail. No, if you go back to John 7, verses 45 through 47, the temple police had one job, at least at this point, go arrest Jesus and bring him back. And they go and they come back and the Pharisees are like, well, where is he? And what's their response? No one ever spoke like this man. They were blown away by his words. Now you put the reputation of Jesus, you do that in the middle of the night, you have Jesus step forward and speak, surely they could fall on their face and be a little freaked out. I think that's fine. I think that totally happened. And so in this first scene, we see Jesus and we see Judas. We see one who betrayed for 30 pieces of silver and one who protected his very own until the end. What's the point? Jesus was innocent. He was falsely arrested. He was betrayed by his very own. Verse 13, we now move to the next scene, which is Jesus under the Jewish trial. First, they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. So a little history lesson. There's two high priests in a sense right now. Annas is the Jewish high priest. 
And when you're high priest in the Jewish mind, you're high priest for life. Rome comes along and says, nope, not you. Removes him, puts someone else in place. Eventually Caiaphas will take and be the high priest. So you have two in a sense. You have a political high priest that Rome put in. And then you have one in the Jewish mindset where it's like, no, this is really the high priest. So it can get kind of confusing, but it's not. So they take him to Annas who is the father-in-law, the Jewish high priest in their mind. They go to his house and they're likely having this done in the courtyard that is attached to his home. This scene's gonna go back and forth with Peter and Jesus. Peter and Jesus. Verse 15. Simon Peter followed Jesus and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, which is probably John here, it's probably John. The other disciple who was known to the high priest, he went out and he spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and he brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, hey, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I'm not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. Okay, shift back to Jesus. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I've spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand saying, is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. John will not record what happens with Caiaphas right here. And we will shift back to Peter. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, so they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I'm not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. In the Jewish trial, we see a big contrast between Jesus and Peter. This is the worst moment of Peter's life. He walks in, likely John brings him in, and a simple servant girl, not threatening, asks a simple question. Aren't you one of his disciples? I'm not. And right there, he flat out denies over two and a half, three years of walking with Jesus. Why would he do this? John, if this is the other disciple, I'm sure he was known as follower of Jesus. He doesn't seem to be scared. And what is he scared about what she, I don't know. He, he's really afraid at this point, so much so that he denies Jesus. And then we, the scene progresses and he denies Jesus a second time and then he denies it a third time. John does not record for us the detail of what Peter did by the time he got to the third denial. The other gospels, and I bring this in for, so you can see what John is doing. The other gospels, show Peter, by the time he gets to the third one, calling down curses on himself. I swear to God, if I, I don't know him, may God curse me right here if I'm lying. I don't know him. It gets that bad. 
By the way, James tells us don't swear. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. We shouldn't talk that way. We don't need to talk that way. We don't need to drag God into our lives or possible if we're lying or not. No, we don't need to do that. John doesn't record that for us. John doesn't record for us the reaction of Jesus. I'm sorry, the reaction of Peter. Peter starts weeping bitterly after this. He is horrified that he did this and broken on the inside. I can't believe I just did that. What's important for John? Jesus's words were fulfilled. Jesus told Peter he would do this all the way back in chapter 13, I believe, verse 38. This is the worst moment of Peter's life, and Jesus knew it was going to happen before he got there. This was the worst moment of Peter's life, and yet Jesus knew it was happening the whole time it was happening. But you know what the great news is? This would not be the defining moment of Peter's life, because God had plans to intervene and to bring grace to Peter and to rescue him from the worst moment of his life. The worst moment in your life does not define you. The worst sin you've committed, the most horrible atrocity you thought or carried out, or maybe you're planning to carry out, God forbid, that does not define you. What defines you is the grace of God in your life, whether you receive it or whether you don't. And for those of you who do believe, that is truly the defining moment. Paul was a murderer. Do we remember him as Paul the murderer? No, he's Paul the apostle. Why? because the grace of God has redefined his life. Thomas, often we can remember him as the doubter. Did that define his life? No, the grace of Jesus defined his life. And he went on to make one of the greatest confessions in all of scripture, my personal favorite, I think. He said to Jesus, my Lord and my God, the Lord of me, the God of me. Whatever it is that you have done, that is not your defining moment of your life. It is what Jesus has done for you, what he has made you into. Can I get a witness? Amen. Let that be something that encourages you, fills you, and blesses you this morning. But why did he do it? Why did he deny him? The best answer I can come up with, he was afraid. He was afraid that what would happen to him, what's happening to Jesus would happen to him. So he denied it. He tried to escape it. We can never get to a place where we're so afraid that we actually deny our Lord and Savior. Jesus makes it clear if we deny him publicly and we say no to him, he will deny us before the Father and the angels in heaven. In fact, it is your privilege to identify with Jesus. And it's also your privilege to suffer with him. Turn with me to Acts chapter 5, beginning in verse 40. Acts chapter five, verse 40. The apostles understood this after Jesus rose from the dead. Acts chapter five, verse 40. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. If the San Diego City Council pulled you in tomorrow and they pulled you in a room and started punching you, and hitting you, and told you to zip your mouth about Jesus and sent you out, how would you feel? Oh man, I, I don't even know. I don't know how, we, the whole plethora of emotions, I'm sure. Look what the disciples did with this. Verse 41, then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. They celebrated. 
that they got to identify even with Jesus in his sufferings. Wow, we actually are considered that worthy where we could be beat up and told to be quiet for the name of Jesus? What a great day! I think Disneyland sounds like a much better day than that. No, they understood something. They understood the privilege we get to identify with our Lord in the good, in the bad, and the ugly. What a beautiful scene here. Let us never get to a place where we're so afraid that we deny our Lord. Lord, help us to overcome fears and to walk in your grace and to be proud to identify with you. In contrast to Peter in this whole scene of him denying, we have Jesus now under trial. And they want to know, I want to know about your teaching. I want to know about your, your followers. How many are we talking about? What are you telling them? Jesus says, go ahead, ask anybody you want. Call in all the witnesses you want. I've said nothing in secret. At that moment, a hand reaches back and pops him right across the face. I don't know if you've ever seen, there's this competition where guys will stand in front of each other and they will let one another slap each other in the face. And the goal is, is to not get knocked out. Or if you're on the other side, the goal is to slap him so hard he falls over. I mean, they're just like this too. And the guy doesn't move. And just pop. It's incredible. I can't believe you would subject yourself to that. That's what Jesus did. He stood there and he let the guy reach back and pop his creator in the face. And what did Jesus do? Tell me the wrong that I did. If not, why did you strike me? What's the point? Jesus is innocent. He didn't deserve to be hit. There is no clear charge being brought against him where he deserves this. And so what happens? Annas doesn't even go through the process of getting witnesses that we can see. Just get out of here. The other guy doesn't say anything because Jesus is innocent. This is the thread here. We have men's hearts rejecting him, betrayed by his own, and yet Jesus is innocent. Jesus is innocent. And this is very important for the world to know. Continuing on now to the last portion of chapter 18, we begin the Roman trial. Verse 28. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. This is Pontius Pilate. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? D.A. Carson points out, this question here starts the trial, okay? What is the accusation? Ready, set, go. Look at their answer. They answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Do you see any clear charge in there? No. <laughs> if he wasn't a bad guy, like we wouldn't have brought him over, Pilate. Like, just take our word for it. They seem to have gotten the Roman soldiers from Pilate to go arrest Jesus. So now they think Pilate is just going to go along with the flow. Yeah, sure thing. Not. Pilate doesn't like the Jews. Watch his response. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. Get out of my face. Take your religious squabble and you go figure it out. It seemed Pilate liked to watch them squirm. The Jews said to each other, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. Whoa. What did you just say? We're talking death? This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Jesus is not only innocent, his words are being fulfilled again and again with his own betrayal and now his own death. If you go back to John 12, Jesus said he would be lifted up. What is that a picture of? A Roman crucifix. 
The Jews did not do this. The Jews could not do this. So we are seeing Jesus's words played out in this. He's not being convicted as a criminal. He's carrying out the Father's plan of salvation. This is why we want to get the word of God in front of people. You got to see this. Verse 33, so Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate wants to know if he's a king. Here's the thing. The Jews had to translate their problems to make them Rome's problems as well. Rome doesn't care about son of man, son of God. They don't care about Messiah, temple, Christ. But if you bring another king, a potential rival king, a potential fight and overthrowing, that will speak to Rome. So somehow that information got translated to Pilate. This dude claims to be a king. Later on in the other gospels, we're gonna see that they're actually gonna say, we have no king but Caesar. Horrible. Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, oh, so you're a king. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and he told them, I find no guilt in him. This is a key phrase and a key repetition through the rest of John, or at least during Jesus's trials here. I find no guilt in him, but I tell you what, you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber or an insurrectionalist. In this last scene here, where we're gonna to pause today, we're gonna to see Jesus contrasted with the people and Jesus contrasted with Pilate. We'll start with Pilate. They wanna put him to death. So Pilate goes back into the praetorium and he has some kind of conversation, some measure of a lone conversation with Jesus. And he wants to know, are you a king? Here's what Pilate finds out. Yes, he's a king. Yes, he has a kingdom that's not from here. So it's not the immediate threat that you think it is. And everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Pilate discovers all of this. Jesus is controlling the conversation, drawing Pilate in to hear who he is. And Pilate responds to this, what is truth? This is either a sincere question or is a sneering question. I don't think it's sincere because he asks it and he walks away. If you really wanted to know the answer, you would have paused for at least 60 seconds to hear what he had to say. So really the question I think sounds like this, what is truth? As if anybody could know truth. You don't know truth, whatever. He walks out and what does he say? This guy's innocent. I find no basis of a charge against him. Pilate believes that Jesus is not a criminal or guilty. But Pilate won't listen long enough to follow him as the truth. Pilate is neutral. He's not betraying in the way that we see Judas and Peter are. He's not condemning him as a criminal, but he also is not giving the time of day to hear him as the truth and follow him as the truth. What does that mean? Neutrality is rejection of Jesus. You can't play a middle game with our Lord. 
Charles Spurgeon gives a great example. You cannot put one foot on a moving train and the other foot on the ground. If you try to be of Jesus and of the world, one side will have to give way to the other or you will split your legs. So what's it gonna be? Will you get on the train of grace and allow God to take you to the promised land and save you and rescue you in the train of grace? Or will you step out onto the world and say, I got this, I'll do this myself? Well, Pilate made a decision. By trying to kind of do both, he really made the decision to say, no, I'm not with you. And he rejected Jesus. The other group we see in here is the people. The people, oh, this is just a whole nother level. Their hearts are so hard, they want Jesus dead. Their hearts are so hard. When Pilate comes back, not only pronounces him innocent, I tell you what, we'll do that exchange program we talked about. I'll give you somebody and you get off my back. Sound good? No, they're chanting. They don't want Jesus. They, would, they, hate, they hate him so bad, they would rather have a murder on the streets than Jesus. Barabbas was a murderer. He was an insurrectionist who rose up against the government. We'd rather have that guy out on the street than Jesus, who was healing people who was fixing people, who was bringing the kingdom of God. And it blows your mind. How could someone's heart be so hard where you're so blind, you're irrational now and you're processing? A few months ago, the, there was a bartending school above us and I took some gospels of John and there was about four people standing up here and I went up and I, and I handed them a gospel of John. One of them immediately, nope, walked away. So I talked to the other three and, and I said, I'd like to give this to you. And then I tried to build a bridge. I said, I think you'd agree the world's a pretty broken place. Most people agree with that. Yeah. I said, you ever wonder how it got that way? Now I'm trying to introduce sin. I'm trying to introduce the real problem so I can help them find the real solution. And one of the girls, she seemed to have a Christian background, something, and kind of understood this idea of sin. And another girl, she looked at me and she said, it's the patriarch, patriarchy, and it's Jesus. I'm just saying. She believed Jesus was the problem with the world. How did she get to that place? I don't know. We didn't talk long enough to figure that out. But that is so sad. Jesus is not the problem. We are the problem. Our hearts are the problem. Jesus came to fix that problem. And yet, he, this is John chapter one. He came to that which was his own, yet his own did not receive him. And we're seeing that theme now play out. But to those who did receive and believe, God gave them the right to become children of God. Isn't that amazing? Praise God indeed. Today, as we've looked at John 18, and we've seen the beginning of the end here for Jesus, we see he's not a, he's not a criminal. Every thread of this, he's innocent. The problem is people and their hearts. Where's your heart at with the Lord today? Do you hate him? He's not the problem. It's in your own heart. Are you trying to be neutral and trying to kind of play both sides? Don't. You've got to pick a side. I, I encourage you to pick Jesus aside, why? Because, th and this is our big application. Everyone who, everyone on the side of truth listens to who? Jesus. Jesus tells the truth. He reveals the truth of God and he saves those who trust in him and he's getting ready to go pay the ultimate sacrifice to make that happen. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you, Lord, for going through such turmoil with man so you could save man, so you could save woman. Thank you for being a gracious Savior, a strong Savior. May the world know you are innocent. May the people in this room know you are innocent and believe upon you and be your people. 
Lord, fill us with your spirit. Help us to be your witnesses. Help us to be your children. Help us to be the fathers, the husbands, the wives, the mothers, the brothers, the sisters that you've called us to be by your grace alone. And thank you, Lord, that your grace is what truly defines us. We now respond and praise you because of it. Amen.